Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm so excited that you're joining us today. We are going to have a fascinating conversation, as usual, as we learn from people all around the world at all ages and stages of life. Stay tuned as we shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort. Here we go. What you think about Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm thrilled that you are here with us today. We are going to have a fascinating conversation. We are honored to have Denise Brown with us, and she's going to be talking about navigating the six caregiving stages, and Lord knows we all need help and support with that. Um, and we also have with us uh, Kate Lau Booth with us, uh, who is living with dementia, who's going to be my co-host. But before I introduce both of them, I always like to um, acknowledge our opening song, which is called Clarion Call by the Mark Arneson Band featuring Maya Dore. And you can download that at any of your favorite uh, music platforms. And for those of you that are new to our show, Alzheimer Speaks is about sound information, not just sound bites. We like to have real conversations with real people. So that includes people living with a form of dementia, those that care for them, uh, both family and professional and friends, as well as all of the many services and researchers and advocates that are out there. Now, today is a live show, so you can call in, and that number is 323-870-4602. That's 323-870-4602. Now, I always like to do a few shout-outs, so I have to give a holler out to Maple Hill uh, Senior Living and Moments Hospice, because tomorrow I'm going to be doing an event for them uh, that is really going to be highlighting Dementia Map, and um, that is going to start at 8 a.m. Central Time. Anybody is welcome to be part of that. You can just go to our website to find more information out about that but we would love for you to attend and um, speaking of dementia map we are going to be rolling out in fact this is the first time i've said it um a summer sizzle sale um so 25 percent off any um, paid annual plan so that's kind of exciting for people to take advantage of we also um I want to talk about um, and give a shout out to the Memory Cafe directory as well. Um, Many of the cafes are coming back um, into live meetings. Um, I know the one I'm doing is still choosing to go virtual, but, you know, slowly things are opening up and things are changing. So make sure you check out Dementia, or I'm sorry, MemoryCafeDirectory.com to get more information on your location. And I also talked with Coral Health, and they are still going to allow people to download uh, two of their apps, Music First and Coral Faith, for free throughout the end of the year. So I was really thrilled uh, to hear that. And then I was um, 
I was approached uh, by a person who is doing a research um, paper, and they're looking for participants that are living with dementia and have a, a formal diagnosis from a medical professional, are currently employed full or part-time, or recently left work because of their dementia, and are ages 35 and older, and they need to speak fluent uh, English, live in the United States, and are willing to be interviewed remotely. I think this will be a really interesting study. You can learn more on that by calling uh, Chris Bragno, and his number is 203-510-3470. That's 203-510-3470. Just a couple more housekeeping uh, items to go. Want to also remind people that Maud's Adventures, you still have till the end of the month um, to submit your application for one of their three challenges that they're giving seed money of fifty to $100,000 for one is adaptive clothing, what is aphasia, and one is respite care uh, for dementia. So just go to modsventures.org for more information. And then last... Um, or I guess second to the last, I'm just going to give a shout out to the, uh, Together for Dementia. Uh, their conference is coming up November 2nd, but you can book now. And you can uh, find more information on that, again, by just going to alzheimerspeaks.com. Now, before I introduce our guests, we're going to hear from the Foot Bar Walker, and we will be right back. Introducing the life-changing Foot Bar Walker. I'm Peggy from Danville, Kentucky, and I'm 91 years old. The Foot Bar Walker revolutionized my care of George. The saving that I made from having to put him in a nursing home came to about $192,000. The Foot Bar Walker opens and closes just like a standard walker. The only thing that is different is the top bar and the foot bar. Does that ever make a difference? Does someone you love use a walker? Do they struggle to get up from a seated position? Are you a caregiver dealing with physical pain and stress as you help your patient? The Foot Bar Walker was designed to assist not only the patient, but also the caregiver. Patients have more control standing up, and no lifting from the caregiver is required. See how it works at thefootbarwalker.com. That's thefootbarwalker.com. Peggy, would you recommend the Foot Bar Walker? Do I ever? I would not be in the health that I'm in today at this age had it not been for the Foot Bar Walker. I just love that Foot Bar Walker. I can't tell you um, what uh, unique product that is to help reduce injuries and um, give everybody a little bit more dignity um, when they need some assistance uh, with, with being able to be ambulatory. Now, uh, let me introduce uh, my co-host, today. We're going to have Kate Lau Booth with us. She's been with us many times. I adore her to death. She is living with dementia and she always adds so much to our program. Kate, do you want to give um, people a little bit of background about, you know, when you got diagnosed and what type of dementia you have? Yes. <clears throat> My name is Kate Lau. I'm originally from Malaysia and this is a long way from home. I came here to have fun started a new life, never planned to get dementia, and now I have a behavior variant frontotemporal dementia. Um, I have a family, 
and uh, my grandchildren are the joy of my life. And uh, without them, I don't know how I can I can fight this. And uh, I am involved. I'm still very much involved. Uh, I'm one of the admins of Forget Me Not um, group, dementia group. Um, I am um, a member of Dementia Mentors, um, a member of um, Association of Frontotemporal Dementia, and so on and so forth. So anyway, I um, I have um, done a bit of caregiving myself as a personal assistant uh, to to the uh, people in the community. So um, this would be a great show for me. I, I've got plenty to learn. And now um, I'm I'm the patient and I'm not the caregiver. So uh, Denise is going to be a great help to me. Thank yep, you. Yeah, little, little role reversal there, huh? Well, thanks for yes. joining us, Kate. We've missed you on this show. Um, I also want to, of course, introduce our guest today, uh, who is Denise Brown. And Denise is known for empowering individuals and helping them transform their personal caregiving experiences. Um, and she has done that by building a business, and she's, you know, just on this mission of advocacy. She is the author of the book uh, Healing Words, Soothing Strategies to Heal Your Caregiving fatigues, and also uh, the caregiving years, your guide to navigating the six caregiving stages. So I'm so thrilled to to finally connect with you, Denise, and have you on the show. So welcome. Thank you so much, Lori. It's great to be here with you and Kate today. Looking forward to our conversation. Wonderful. Before I kind of get into my line of questioning, I always like to start by asking if you um, and your family have been personally touched by dementia or in your circle of friends at all. Definitely. I've been supporting family caregivers for, gosh, 30 years, and so many of my friends have cared for a family member with dementia. In my family, my caregiving experience for my parents has been more related to cancer, my dad was diagnosed with bladder cancer in 2004, and my parents are 89 and 86 and live about 10 minutes from me, and I help them on a regular basis. Wonderful. It's nice you still have your folks with you. Um, my dad passed in 2001. I can't believe it's been 20 years. Wow. And, and and my mom um, and my dad had uh, brain cancer. My mom had dementia, and she passed in 2014. And I just, uh, I, I still can't believe it's been that long um, because it just it seems like yesterday on, on so many levels. I want to ask you about caregiving fatigue. Um, that is something we hear people talk about all the time. And um, I want to get, you know, your version of what it is and, and what causes it. I actually think of compassion fatigue as an umbrella term. And I had that insight when I was talking to one of the participants in my certified caregiving consultant training. And she was talking about her mom and how she realizes her mom just can't cope any longer. And I thought, I'm not sure if she can't cope. I think she has run out of resources to continue coping, meaning her mom had already lost her spouse. She lost her vision. She was losing her independence. 
So anything beyond that, we just don't have the resources to continue coping. When I had that realization, I thought, gosh, we get tired of coping. We get tired of trying, especially in a situation when you're caring for a family member with dementia. You are trying techniques and strategies and resources on a regular basis. You're really trying to find that sweet spot where you feel like, okay, this works. We get tired of feeling guilty. We get tired of worrying. There are so many different aspects of the caregiving experience from which we grow weary that I thought it was really important that we get specific, that we name what it is that right now we're weary of so that we can find a specific solution. Well, you know, I, I like when, you know, I had mentioned uh, caregiving fatigue and you said, really, no, it's it's compassion uh, fatigue. I think that really sums it up so, so well, because it is that that giving of ourselves and that compassion and that we, you know, we want to do good. We want people to feel comfortable. And in doing that, it, you know, you can feel sometimes like a dog chasing your tail around. Oh, wow. Yes. I, I know. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. I was just going to mention that I think that we also run out of compassion for ourselves too. And that's really when I feel like we are just burnt. We are, we are feeling for two during a caregiving experience. We feel so much for and about our caree. And then we feel for ourselves as well. We are also really putting up that public face where we're pretending, for lack of a better word, that everything is fine. It's hard for us to be honest, especially when we are with our carrier. We want to make sure that they don't feel that they are impacting us. So we are publicly saying to everybody, I'm fine. And then privately we're thinking, oh, my gosh, how am I going to keep going? How am I going to figure this out? How am I going to continue? And that's when we want to be really compassionate for ourselves. Forgiving ourselves for our impatient days, forgiving ourselves for our thoughts that sometimes we think, oh, my gosh, I feel guilty for thinking that, but I still think it. And I think because we're so compassionate toward our care that it's hard for us to then pivot and remember to, to keep compassion for ourselves within that circle of care. Oh, I so agree with you. I I think our inner critic is really good at beating us up all the time on that stuff. And oh, and um, yeah. you know, and when you when you step into that role, you want to do good, and you know, your whole world can really um, just change in a flash. And not only does it affect the the care partner um, who is specifically kind of playing that primary role, but the whole family dynamics and and circle of friends, everything kind of gets flipped upside down and uh, nobody totally understands on the outside what's going on on the inside. And, uh, you know, why are all these other relationships changing because you're caring for somebody else? I, I know that's what I, I personally have found and heard from other people. Have you, have you seen that too, where it's just kind of that ripple effect in terms of relationships when you're caring for another? Absolutely. Certainly. Your outlook on life is different during a caregiving experience. And for those who aren't in a caregiving experience, they can't understand that outlook. 
And they also, I think, sometimes are very uncomfortable when you talk about the stress of your day because they don't know how to fix that stress. So they might start telling you what to do. And honestly, the last thing we need is for someone to tell us what to do because we have been trying it. <laughs> what we, want is, we just really want someone to sit and listen with us. And it's very hard for others to do that because they are they see us in pain and they want to take away that pain. And they can't. They can't. And it makes them uncomfortable. And I think that's part of the reason why we might notice that friends disappear or we don't feel as connected to our friendships as we once did. Oh, I, I think that that is, is so very true. Um, you know, I tell a story about my friends wanting me to meet for coffee and I kept blowing them off and blowing them off. I didn't have time. And, and then I went. Um, and the only reason I actually agreed to even go was to get them off my back because it just felt like a burden that they, you know, wanted me to be part, and I just didn't feel like I had the time. And then, uh, you know, it was it was at that meeting of coffee, and I was only going to stay for 10 minutes. I stayed for two hours. We laughed and we cried. It was at that moment I realized how empty I was. I didn't even know I was empty because I was too busy being busy. And that was just an eye-opener to me. Just And I was so grateful my friends didn't give up on me, and I went every week you know, going forward. Um, that was just such a gift they gave me um, to be able to feel wow. again, normal. Wow. And, and so I think, you know, when we're caring like this, you know, you, you kind of get pulled in, sucked in, you know, if it's, if it's a volunteer or not, you know, if you want to be there or not, but things just change. And sometimes they change really gradually and sometimes, you know, really quickly, but you just don't even have time to notice it because you're too busy being busy and trying to figure out what's the game plan, you know, with that all the time. Um, gosh, what what good insights. I, and I love that, that compassion, uh, compassionate fatigue. I think that is, um, it just summarizes it and makes people look at it a little, a little bit differently. Um, what helps people heal on this journey? Because there's, so many mixed emotions. I don't care who you're caring for. Um, you know, you, it, it changes your life. And like you said, and how you look at things, how you prioritize things. So how do we heal and stay sane? <laughs> you know, it's interesting that you talk about priorities because it really is an experience of priorities. And sometimes we think the only priority is the pressing need. And we have to remember that that's a priority, but not the only priority. So I, I think when we're looking at healing, we have to permission to name what hurts and that we are not making this situation and this experience harder. It is this hard. <laughs> it is this difficult. It is this exhausting. So I think you had talked earlier about you know, just beating ourselves up. I think we can stop that by knowing that we are doing our best during days where we're called to be our, our bravest, our most courageous. And that can start us down the path of healing, just naming what hurts and then thinking about what could help me feel better today. I came up with this idea around a daily healing plan where we think about today this is what hurts. 
and I can help heal that with, and then thinking about what's the strategy or solution that can help. And then thinking about where do we want to go with that? It could be we want to get to a place of peace or understanding or forgiveness or calm. And so every day we can think and give ourselves time to think about what hurts me today and then think about what could help me heal today. And then where do I want to go with this? I want to be at peace or I want to be in love or I want to feel where I, I want to go where I feel like I belong. I think if we look at healing as a process, which really starts with grieving part about this too, to acknowledge that grief is this prominent emotion during the caregiving experience. We're experiencing losses, the loss that our carries experience, and then the losses that we experience, those build. And it's important that we give ourselves time to acknowledge that, to name it, and then think to what could help us feel better, and then decide, well, where do you want to go with that? And then give yourself permission to go. I also want to mention that what hurts can be something that's physical. We think about the emotional pain of caregiving, but sometimes that stress shows up in our lower back or our migraine or the pain in the back of our neck. So it's thinking, too, about what's the physical pain and what's causing that physical pain and what can we do to help just soothe some some of the things that hurt. Oh, I'm so glad you mentioned that because I think, uh, you know, there's always that saying that, you know, a lot of times the person caring um, will get ill or sometimes will even pass away before the person they're caring for uh, because things, you know, manifest in their body. And and I think that that's really, really critical. I want to pull Kate in and um, just kind of get your thoughts. Uh, Kate, is any of this resonating with you in terms of when you were caring for, for others? Yes, I I find that um, when I was caring for you know several people in a in a uh, in a facility, I did not feel lonely. I felt like my life wasn't cut off because I care for people naturally, and uh, I have a lot of compassion, and uh, I take time. I do not care who needs a dead horse being pulled right now because I am talking to this one and I look into her eyes and then uh, somebody comes in and interrupts, but then there is still uh, company. You don't look like you've lost all your friends and la, 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 because all these people working with you, some are not nice, some aren't nice. Some are not nice to their patients, some aren't nice to you, <laughs> but still it's a lie. You go out, you go out there, you know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. You go out there, and uh, there's people around you. You, you can talk about uh, um, things like, you know, after work, I'm going to do such and such and such. Whereas when I did um, um, personal caregiving, one-on-one, word of mouth, so I was a personal assistant to several professors at the emeritus from the university. Um, that's interesting, too. Because uh, strangely enough, their minds their minds are so sharp, and you never know what they're going to say. But then they can't see some of the food on the plate, and they can see only this. And this part of the, this is the symptom, uh, you know, some uh, to some of the dementia that they have. Um, compassion, compassion fatigue. Is that what you were talking about? 
mm-hmm. earlier, Denise, were you talking about compassion fatigue? Yes, yes. Compassion fatigue. Um, it is harder to work one-on-one because all your mind think about is that one person that you take care of. He becomes your life. And you think about him. You think about why, mm-hmm. oh, his wife wasn't too nice to him today, didn't leave any food. Well, I mean, enough food, but five grapes couldn't last till five o'clock when she gets home. Um, and <laughs> uh, got to drive him to the university to make him feel like he also still has a life. He's surrounded by his old environment. And, uh, you know, when he's down, I always say, well, did you want to go to, to the university? To your office, and then you have to know the right words. And then he gets up, and and he's already put on his tie. I dress him up, slap some cologne on him, and then he feels like, oh, I'm feeling good. Okay, let's go. Even though he does nothing, taking him to work makes him feel like he is still a part of something. Because when I come home, um, after caregiving, I feel like. My whole head, my whole mind, I, I was so, so tired. It's just one person, and I'm so drained. But eight people, and I wasn't that drained. And mm-hmm. because one person can take a lot from you, because you have to focus on that one person. Eight patients all have different needs. And uh, I, I always enjoy my patients because they are the wildest, <laughs> you never know what they're going to say, and uh, and uh, I just I just love them, and I just laughing, laughed and laughed at them, and uh, I also didn't. I felt lonely at that time. I did feel lonely, but not as bad as I do now, mm-hmm. as a patient. Um, okay. I just don't know what to do, where to go, what do I do with my life? I want to do this, but I can't do it. And I need help, but I don't have help because I'm okay. staying at home. And my well, mind you. is still working. Yeah. My mind is still working Wonderful. well enough to want to do this, but I cannot, you know, I cannot balance my bank account. It takes me a while, and that is very, very uh, energy draining. Okay. Well, let's see if we get some uh, some other tips here from from Denise. I want to talk about. Um, respite in place. A lot of people don't even know oh, what respite yeah. is. So can you can you talk with that? I I, I think that's a, just a confusing term for so many people. Yeah. So respite is really giving yourself a break and using either a service or a family member to step in and provide care in your place. So the respite is for you. You get a break. And I think about during the pandemic and about how many couldn't get a break. Either they didn't feel comfortable having hired help come into the home or it just wasn't financially possible or the logistics of it were just too difficult to manage. So I think about what is the pandemic-proof respite opportunity. And I think about respite in place, a place in the home, in the backyard, in the community, that gives back to you. It's a place in the corner of your bedroom where you go to feel like, okay, this is where I just relax because part of the 
reason that we have this chronic stress during caregiving is because we just can't find the time to relax. So if we had this spot in our home where it was just for us to sit and connect to music or listen to your radio show or to journal and to just decompress, or a spot in our backyard where it feels like we are surrounded by our own own version of nature where we have plants and flowers and a water feature. And what if it's a spot in our community like a respite garden that's tended and cultivated by former family caregivers as a gift to today's family caregivers? And you could walk to the respite garden and walk past signs that say, you're important, we believe in you, you can You can sit in this garden and just collect the energy that's there for you in a way that makes you feel loved and supported and surrounded by people who want you to be well. I think if we had programs like that, in addition to the traditional respite programs, then we always can take a break regardless of what's going out in the world or even in our family. If there's a situation where our caree is having significant declines and we just are not going to leave them, we can be in the house with them but take a few moments for our own space. I, I think there's something about respite in place where we feel connected in a way that also gives us a chance to relax can be really helpful thinking about respite in a different way so that it's always pandemic-proof. Well, and I love that. And, it, you know, that is something so simple. But, you know, I was talking in our dementia chats this morning, we were we were talking about kind of a care versus care type thing. And, you know, everybody kind of wants, uh, you know, a pill and a quick fix. And they want someone else to hand that over to them <laughs> and so they don't have to figure it out. But, you know, it is so helpful to take advantage of of your own space and find that safe, comfortable space. Or, you know, one of my favorite um, sayings, and I think this can be interpreted this way as well, is by Harry Urban, Living with Dementia. And he said, you know, I, I like to relax before I got dementia. I still do. You don't always have to keep me busy. And sometimes I think as care partners, we we feel like we have to be busy and we have to keep them busy. And kind of like with new mothers, you know, they're told as soon as that baby is is popped in their arms, they're like, okay, now, when the baby sleeps, you sleep. And most mothers don't do that because they're too busy being busy. And then they realize afterwards, oh, I really should have taken advantage of that peacefulness. If it's taking a nap, if it's reading a book, if it's hopping in the shower, you're taking a bath or whatever it is. There are so many different things or listening to music or, like you said, sitting outside and, you know, feeling the the breeze on your face and the sun and, you know, the smell of the flowers, um, you know, the chirping of the birds, you know, but we don't slow down to even think what, 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 what brings us peace. Uh, to me, that's one of the biggest problems we have is people don't really know. They haven't slowed down because we're in such a fast-paced society. And I know when I was in the thick of um, caring for my for most of my folks and I was uh, still selling real estate, I would, um, in my office at uh, <clears throat> selling real estate, 
I would shut my door. I put a sign on the outside. I put on some meditation music. I'd light a candle. I'd turn off the lights, and I'd give myself 10 or 20 minutes. And boom, I was ready to go again. I was just totally rejuvenated by just giving myself a little bit of peace where my mind wasn't spinning anymore. And I think that that's brilliant um, and and very much needed um, for us to look within and what can we do, you know, within our own world and our own space and our own means that gives us peace. Um, So thank you so much for bringing that up. Um, So, yeah, that's just a, I, I think that's, such an important, important piece for people. Let's talk about, you know, the six caregiving strategies um, that present the most challenges, you know, to the to the average Joe out there caring for another person. Yeah, so the six stages is a concept I initially developed in 1997. When I first developed it, there were actually four stages. And I actually took a book out of the stages of Alzheimer's disease. It seemed like if you could stage a disease process, you gave both the person living with the disease and that family caregiver a sense of control, a little bit of power. You weren't completely taken aback by everything that happened. You had a little opportunity to think ahead. And I thought, what if we do that with the caregiving experience? What would those stages look like? So a year after I initially developed the first four stages, I added two more stages. And so it's always been six stages. And when I first developed the six stages, there always was the expectant caregiver. And that's the stage prior to actually helping anyone in the family. And I got a lot of pushback on that. People were like, no one thinks of the uh, caregiving experience prior to the experience. And I thought, well, that, that's the problem. So if we put it in a stage and talk about what you can do, that will help. Because the reality is everyone is an expectant caregiver. So I help my parents right now who are 89 and 86. However, that's not my only caregiving experience. In my lifetime, I probably will also help siblings and other family members. I've already helped an aunt who died a couple years ago. I've helped a niece when she had mental health issues a few years ago. Our caregiving experience is actually throughout our lifetime. And if you think about it, many of us actually had a caregiving experience when we were younger. It might not have lasted very long, but we would have stepped into a role within the family to help out. So we've already had experiences as family caregivers. And we're looking at This expectant stage is the realization that let's have conversations now with others in our family so that we have a better idea of their values, of their priorities, of their wishes, especially if you've gone through an experience where you started caring for someone and you had no opportunity to have those conversations. You know what it's like to try to guess. And if there's an opportunity where you don't have to guess, let's take it. Let's have those difficult conversations. And then the second stage, which is the freshman caregivers, when you first start to help someone, it could be that you run errands for someone once a week or you start to manage medications or you go with someone during doctor's appointments. It could be the first time you're involved in the healthcare system because a family member is hospitalized. 
I think the hardest, the hardest stage is the third stage, which is when you're entrenched. And even if you're not providing care, you're thinking about caregiving. You're worrying about it. You're making decisions because of caregiving around your career or vacation or how your day is structured. You're even thinking about caregiving at night, which is why you keep your cell phone on and right next to you at bedside so that you don't miss that midnight call because you're now used to the idea that a crisis happens and it's going to happen again. So you're always waiting for that other shoe to drop. It's hard to be in that situation where you are in the thick of it. It's like being in the fog of caregiving. It's all you can hear. Like it's the fog horn <laughs> that calls to you. Even when there's nothing going on, you still hear it. You're still thinking, okay, we've got quiet now, but it's not going to last. So when I was putting together the six stages, I really wanted to have a coping strategy in each of the stages. And the coping strategy is a keyword. In the first stage, it's to ask, which really prompts this conversation. And then the second stage, it's defined. And it's this idea that we can experiment. Experimenting is this amazing life skill where you're not attached to an outcome, but you're committed to trying. And you're just going to see what happens. So you're going to gather really helpful feedback about anything you try. And it could be how you try to have a conversation, what resources you try, what your structure, the structure of your day. And then you take that information to make tweaks or to change or to stop and to start. And in the entrenched stage, it's, and this will make complete sense, it's to receive because you're giving so much. And it's interesting, Lori, you shared a great story about how you received during that time when you were working and caring for your parents where you would go into your office and you had all the tools available to you so you could receive. You had the candle. I think you talked about music. You set the stage so you were in a place of receiving for 10 to 20 minutes, which is so important. And you saw then what happened. Once you gave yourself time to receive, you could go back out into the world. You could fully commit to the rest of your workday. So that entrenched stage, it feels so common sense to know to receive, but we have to remind ourselves. We actually have to get into that ritual of receiving because we get into that habit of giving. And we want to make sure that we counter the giving with receiving. And interestingly enough, giving only works when receiving is part of the equation. We give when someone receives. And we want to receive so someone can give to us. That's very true. And um you know, you mentioned when I, I did my little meditation thing, I just I felt empowered afterwards. I mean, I felt like I can go back at this. I, I, I felt stronger. I felt like my mind was clearer. Um, I, but I think one of the problems people have is they don't like to receive. Um, even if they're even if they're in need of care, a lot of times people push it away because they want to be independent. They want to do it themselves. You know, all of those types of things, and some of it can be um, from a, a dignified standpoint, you know, where they, they feel less than. Um, so, you know, I think, it's, I think it's really important that we realize how good it feels to give. And, you know, when we don't ask for help or when we don't recognize what our needs are, 
the only one we're harming is ourselves in that process yep. and and that that is not Absolutely. a failure you know that really is that's a strength right. yeah to be able to recognize yeah. that we we have a training program for family caregivers and we had a class earlier this month and it's a 6 hour training it's 3 hours over a period of 2 days and we talked about receiving in one of the classes and one of the participants cares for her daughter who's 19 and she started to say i've never had a chance to receive i've always just been giving so i asked the question when was the last time you received And it was like she was struck by lightning. Honest to goodness, you could just see this awareness happen in an instant. And she said, oh, my gosh, I am receiving right now. She said, my husband is taking care of our daughter so I can be here. I am receiving right now. And it was this complete perspective shift on what it is that she and her husband do. They give and they receive. It was enlightening for her and so then when she realized that she was receiving in that moment because her husband was giving she then was in a place to say oh my gosh I want to make sure I take care of this nice back and forth of giving and receiving so that we both still give and receive if we have that awareness then we can take care of it because the best resource is others who give and receive with us we want to take care of them yep Wow. Well, let's let's move on to um we we got through 3 of them. Can we see if we can uh, get through the other oh, yes. the other yes. 3? <laughs> so we yes. stopped at it being entrenched. Yes. So interestingly enough, we do move out of the entrenched stage. It doesn't seem like we will, but we do. <laughs> so I think about in the entrenched stage, it's tornadoes. There's tornadoes swirling outside of us, and then there's tornadoes swirling inside of us. And then we get used to it. We don't get so shocked by a crisis. We don't get so shocked by a family member's insensitive comment or their refusal to help. This adjustment moves us into the pragmatic stage where we realize that caregiving is part of our life. So let's live. Let's live our life during a life of caregiving. And the key word in this stage is to welcome. And it's this idea that we welcome forgiveness, forgiveness of ourselves, forgiveness of our caree, forgiveness of our faith, other family members, friends, the healthcare system, whatever has hurt us. Because we're calmer in our caregiving experience, this is the opportunity to welcome that forgiveness. We also have an opportunity to welcome times during our day where it's not about caregiving. And it's interesting, you talked about this earlier, where we don't value downtime. We think yep. if everybody is busy with an activity, we are successful. And in this stage, the pragmatic stage, we realize, you know what? Success isn't busyness. Success is memorable connections. Success is relaxation. Success is self-care. So we figure it out in a way that works for us, for our care, for our family. And we think about receiving opportunities in a different way. So when we're entrenched, we might have this knee-jerk reaction to say no. And you actually talked about this earlier, too. Oh, gosh, Laura, you're giving me me all these great examples. Saying no to your friends. That was when Mm -hmm. you thought, there is no opportunity for me to take time to do this. No, no, no. 
But yep. then you move into a stage where you're like, okay, yes. And then look what happened for you. You made it a commitment on a regular basis to connect to friends who gave to you so you could receive. And in turn, yeah. you gave back to them because, because you shared your sense of humor. You, ensure, you shared your joy of life with them. That's a beautiful connection that you created with them. Yeah, it, it really was. Oh, yeah, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say it. It, it was so valuable. Um, I don't know if I would have made it through without him. Isn't that interesting? And it's so amazing to me what we withhold from ourselves. And in many ways, we withhold, we withhold believing that it's too complicated or too complex, or it doesn't show up in the way that we think it should look. That something that will change our life has to actually be earth-shattering. And what changed your life during caregiving was going to meet friends for coffee on a weekly basis. Yep. Something totally normal. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Wasn't flashy. Wasn't wasn't any big boom. You know, it was just something really simple. Really simple. And it didn't didn't cost you a ton of money? No. It was something that was easy for you to participate in. It was affordable for you because it was a cup of coffee. It was easy for you to access because it was some place close to where you live, I'm imagining. So Mm -hmm. these solutions arise for us. And in certain moments, we're going to say no. But then there's the moment when we can say yes. And it's important that we try, right? So what's interesting about these keywords is that they build up and into each other. And they are keywords that you actually couple. So, for instance, you take ask from the first stage and you you add it to find. And then you add what receive to ask and find. And then you add welcome to those three. And then you move into the transitioning stage. And this was the hardest stage for me to figure out because I kept thinking it's a transition and it's the caries transition. So thinking about transitions to nursing home or transitions because of death. And as I would talk about this transitioning stage in my workshops, it didn't feel right until, interestingly enough, I was in Winnipeg in January when it was 30 below and I was giving a presentation to people who came. (laughs) They actually don't bat an eye at 30 below temperature in Winnipeg. So we were enjoying a day-long caregiving event, and I was standing up in front of this group of 100 or 150. And at that moment, when I was talking about the transitioning caregiver stage, it occurred to me that it's our transition. It is inspired by a change in our caree as they reach end of life. But the transition that really challenges us is the transition from doing to being. We are so used to doing for our care, seeking out specialists, considering different treatments, trying different medications, asking for different doctors. We're always advocating for better. We want something to change. We are trying to improve the expectancy of their lifetime. And in the transitioning stage, we reach a caries natural cycle of life. No matter how many specialists we go to see, it is not going to change the idea that they have, they have reached their natural cycle of life. So we have to change from doing to being, and that's 
hard because we're going to start to think, oh, my gosh, but if I just got maybe one more specialist, that would save them. So in a caregiving experience, we have saved our carries over and over and over. We've prevented. We've been there when there's an emergency. We are quick to call 911. We are quick to get medical emergencies taken care of. And it's this stage where that's not going to save their life. So we are second-guessing ourselves. And that transition into being, which can be really a difficult shift, can be so powerful because that's when we can feel like, okay, I was there. I was a presence for them. I kept them good company. I shared memories. I shared words. I expressed myself. I didn't hold anything in. When we can be fully present with our carry at the end of their life, that's when we give ourselves comforting memories. It's not about finding another specialist. It's about being fully present to share, to love, to comfort. That's what's most important. Oh, I, I totally agree. And, and really, to me, what you're doing in that moment is true acceptance. I mean, you, uh, you yes. tell yourself you've accepted it, but you really you really have it because you're still trying to fix. And you, you go into a full, total mode of um, support. And not that you weren't supporting before, but now you are emotionally and spiritually supporting them. Yes. And the key word is to allow, mm-hmm. very similar to accept. You're allowing yep. the natural cycle of life. You're not challenging it. So what's so interesting is you have been battling death for years, and now you realize you have won the war. There is no battle anymore. You've done your best. You've given your carry a quality of life that couldn't have happened unless you were there. So you, yep. in essence, it's just as you say, you make peace with the end because you know you've won the war. Yeah. And, and you just cherish those moments, too. You just, um, it, it, everything changes. It's almost like fairy dust is sprinkled on you. You just, you see everything differently in that, in that moment when you are just being present. You're not, you know, grieving the past. You're, you're not, um, you know, worried and uh, about the future, but you're really in the moment where you can see joy and create joy and comfort. And and I think you that's know, such a huge shift. Yeah, and it's interesting. Kate actually talked about being in the moment earlier, and mm-hmm. that's powerful. And if we can think about being in the moment, we actually make the most of the moment when we're not starting to second-guess ourselves or feed into the worries where we're just fully present. This is the moment. I want to be aware of this moment. I want to make the most of this moment. That's where our true power lies, is being fully present in the moment. I totally agree. I want to hear the the, uh, five and six yet. I can't believe we've only got like nine minutes left. Um, so I'm going to stop interrupting you. <laughs> I'm letting you, oh, let no, you finish. Okay. Oh, no. no, please keep interrupting. No, it's very helpful. I, I so appreciate your insights. It's really great. So the transitioning stage is the fifth stage. And actually, there's two parts 
of this stage. It's really one of the, I think it's the only stage where I consider two parts to be a part of it. So there's the before death and then after death. So there's a transition from doing to being prior to your carry's death. And then after your carry's death, there's that transition back into the world. And even if you have kept a life during a life of caregiving, there's something different about the world after someone has died. You might feel different when you go into a grocery store because you're shopping for different items. You're not shopping for what you once did. You might feel different in terms of going back to work and how you interact with coworkers or feel different about how your family celebrates holidays. There's this transition into a life after caregiving that takes time because you're finding your new finding how it is that you want to be in the world. In, at the same time, you still are connected to caregiving because you're closing out the business of caregiving. You might be the executor of the estate or you just might be involved in helping with closing out the paperwork. I think one of the toughest days after someone dies is the day when the medical equipment supply company comes and takes away equipment from the home, the hospital bed, and then you look at the house and it looks so different. You, you get rid of the supplies that you depended on. So there's that transition within the house as well, how you fill those physical voids as well as how you fill those emotional voids. And those can also crop up during your day. So you might have certain times during the day where you think, gosh, this is when I did this. And now I'm not doing it anymore. And it will feel odd. So during that transitioning stage after caregiving ends, it's about really being gentle with yourself, acknowledging that there's different and difficult times during the day that you might feel different in your house because it looks different. And you might feel different in your life because it fits different. Okay, I said I wasn't going to interrupt, but I do have to say one thing because I just I just lost a friend that was a, just a, a dear, and um, another friend called me the other night and she said, you know, I just want to let you know, you can call me anytime you were going to pick up the phone to call JD, and and you know and then I would do that for her, so because there's so many of those times you just want to talk, you know that's that was your bouncing point. And I thought, what a beautiful thing for her to offer, you know, and just to, to, to help support. So I think that that's a way other friends and family members can support one another through that process, too. Um, but, again, it's, it's about reaching out and asking or offering, depending on which and, side you are. Yeah, and what a beautiful gift that your friend gave you, which is the gift of remembering talking mm-hmm. about your your dear friend who died. People are very uncomfortable with, should I talk about them? Should I bring it up? And we want to remember. We want to yep. talk about the person who died because they meant so much to us. It's important yep. to us to remember and share. Yeah. What is number six? So the sixth stage is the Godspeed caregiver. And so you, Lori, are a Godspeed caregiver where you take... <laughs> All the experiences that you gain during a caregiving experience and you say, I want to make it better for others. So you do something like start a radio show, write a book, create a product or service, 
volunteer. Or it could just be that you decide, you know what, every day I'm going to get out into the world and smile because I never know if I'm smiling at a family caregiver. And it might be just what they need that day. So you look at the world as this opportunity to do good. And it's up to you as you, you know, how you decide what doing good means. If it's big, a big dream, or just this little act of kindness every day that makes a difference. And in the Cassie caregiver stage, it's the key word is to treasure. Because you treasure that experience and you treasure this opportunity that it gives you now to live life in a fuller way. Yep. Oh, I love that. I love that. Um, In wrapping up, do you have like three quick tips, you know, for anyone who's, you know, giving care right now um, that you would recommend for them? And I want to make sure that we have time to uh, give people your contact information. So three minutes, ding a ling. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Build support on your best day. We often wait until our worst day to find online support or in-person support. Build it on your best day so it's available for your worst day. Find a way to release those negative emotions. You're going to feel them. They are a normal part of the experience, even though they feel so odd. Write about it. Talk about it. Garden about it. Pull weeds. Whatever it is that you can do to release those negative emotions. Don't judge them. Release them. And then finally, find some way to document what the experience is like for you. Take a photo, write, a, write in a journal, take videos, something that creates almost like this, this full documentation of the caregiving experience. This is a powerful, profound part of your life, and it's important that you honor that, even when it feels like it's sucking the life out of you. Figure out a way to document it. And document it in a way that works for you. Oh, I love those. Those are those are great, great tips. And I think something, you know, doing that on your best day so you're ready for your worst day, you know, because uh, I think on our best days we we think, okay, this is our new path, you know, and there's and we we can put the blinders on to uh, the other shoes going to drop. Um, and then releasing those emotions is so critical, so, so absolutely critical. And then journaling, because you are going to want to remember. And, um, you know, like you said, any way you can. Now, people can um, reach out to Denise at her website, which is um, careyearsacademy.com, careyearsacademy.com. I would highly recommend that you get her book, um, my gosh, what wonderful information uh, you have given us today. And, um, Kate, I'm sorry I didn't pull you in more for this conversation. It was just uh, so filled uh, with such great information. you got 30 seconds. Anything you want to say, Kate? Yes, very quickly about the journaling part. It is so personal. It's just you and the person. And uh, instead of 15 minutes of going out to smoke a cigarette, I normally go and, you know, say, oh, I'm going to go see Eleanor. And then I said, so what shall we write about today? And she would look at me blankly, but that's for us. I'm not writing for me or for her. That is writing for us. We are both doing this journey together. Oh, I love that. And, Thank uh, you. Yeah, Thank this you. journey together. And, um, Denise, how about you? Any any last comments? Um, I've just so enjoyed our conversation, so thank you so much. 
Oh, you're welcome. This was wonderful. And I would also say that healing also comes from opportunities. So look for a yes to an opportunity you can give yourself today. Oh, perfect wrap-up. Thank you so much. Um, We will talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Hi, everyone. This is Meredith from the Senior Fitness with Meredith podcast, where I discuss all things for seniors, from fitness, your health and wellness journeys, how to be all over strong and beyond. I also have my mini podcast called Motivation with Meredith. It's a great, quick, motivational pick-me-up for your days. Join me. Listen now. Search for Senior Fitness with Meredith on your favorite podcast platform.